<clears throat> we are, just because of this past week, we're going to take a break, a one-week break, I think, from Acts, because I would really like to just download and offload some of what God had, was doing in my heart during this conference. I wrote this sermon on the airplane on the way back from Los Angeles because I really wanted to be as affected as I could be when I wrote it. Also, I wanted to um, give you something. I want to I give away three books today. These are two of them, and I want to share them with you. And, I, and when I mean giveaway, I mean I want this to be part of your library. I want you to read this and enjoy this. And uh, it's yours to give to somebody else after, if you like or not. And I want to tell you about these. I have read both of these books. This one's called Ashamed of the Gospel by John MacArthur. It's a call to the church to be faithful to our identity in the gospel. Um, the subtitle is When the Church Becomes Like the World. So it's a call for the church to maintain the distinctives of the Christian community and the core of the gospel. So what is the core of the gospel? And not to be dragged off by, by trendy issues or causes, but to really maintain um, fidelity to the truth. And this, this really affected me. This is for everybody this is not for pastors or elders or deacons. This is for everybody. And uh, I would love for one of you to come and take this from me, take it home. This is a book that I read when I was 19 years old called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. This is a book that I can tell you has and will stand the test of time. It's so insanely richly scriptural that it, it's really, it's like walking with a friend through the scriptures that would draw you to the reasons for holiness, how to become holy, to, to have the scriptures really wash over you and cleanse you of your idolatry and your personal sin. Um, <clears throat> again, I read that in, I don't know, I haven't read this version. I don't know how old Englishy this one is. It's, it can be a dense read, but I'm telling you, this book will affect your Christian walk. It will launch you forward. I, I, I've never been so affected by a book in my life. And I think if a 19-year-old boy can read it, probably most of you can. So come up to me after and ask me for one of these. Um, whichever one. I see Wendy. Which one? You want holiness? Okay, Wendy's got holiness. There's one left. Oh, okay. Oh, Dean. Okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand out one more book at the end, but I'm not going to plug that until after I preach. Um, so Wendy and Dean have got those two, and I'm excited about that, and more books will follow. And <clears throat> something came out at this conference. There was a bit of a theme, and something that drew, just drew me back to a central motivation and a central call in terms of my role in the church. And so this message this morning is called My Stewardship, which is to speak to what is my aim as a leader in the church? What is my aim as a minister of the gospel here in Smith Falls, as a pastor here at Evergreen Chapel, what is my stewardship and what do I make of it? And this comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Let me read that for you. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship that is from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that you have given me to continue to be equipped and trained to lead your church, Lord. And I thank you that there is no other place that I am meant to be than, than here in Smith Falls to, to administer this stewardship here at Evergreen Chapel, Lord. I'm so grateful for that confidence that I have. Lord, may you speak to your people now. Lord, may your word use me as an instrument to reach your people uh, for that is your will, Lord. And we're so thankful that you are with your church and you love us and you care for us. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so as I said, this is part of me processing. Um, the difficulty and the greatest stress that I have when I do something like this four days of, you know, 10 a.m. until 7.30 p.m. for three days straight, the stress that I have going away from that is how, how is this all going to stick? How, how am I going to use the riches that God has poured into me? How am I going to become effective in the things that I learned? The worst feeling is that you go and you learn, you hear something great, and you just think, ah, it's just maybe it's just, just going to wash right out of my head. Am I going to come back and not be changed by it? Uh, that stresses me out. So for me to process this and to preach it out loud is to help me solidify in my heart what God is calling but I think it's also for you to help see where I'm coming from and, and why this ministry has the tone that it does or the flavor that it does or the priorities that it does. And so I hope that you see um, yourself as part of this ministry and, and, and tracking along with what the priorities are. So my stewardship. What is my stewardship? Now, we all are stewards. We are all stewards because... The Bible tells us that everything we have, we got from God. And there's a passage that even says, if you got things from God, then why do you boast as if you had them? We're all stewards. We're all stewards of our relationships. We're stewards of our finances. We are stewards of our time. God has given us all of it, and we are merely stewards, which means we care for it for a short time. I am not the owner of this church by any stretch, and neither are you. But we steward a ministry. We take care of a ministry for a time until which Christ comes and, and reestablishes himself. The Bible says when the chief shepherd appears, all of the under-shepherds and all the other things will just fade away. There will be no need for you know, our spiritual gifts in heaven because the church will be fully equipped and it will be fully known and it will be perfect. Because Christ's glory will shine on us and we will be exactly like him. There will be no moral difference between us and Christ. And so now we know that we're not there. And so there are gifts. The Bible says that when Jesus went up, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. He gave us gifts so that we would administer them to the church. So we steward a ministry. We take care of it. And we are one day called to account for how we did our job. Do you remember the parable in the Gospels? Uh, there was three servants, and Jesus told this story, and he gave three servants different amounts of money. He gave one ten talents, he gave one five talents, and he gave one only one talent. 
and the one with 10 talents went away and he invested it and he made a return. The second one went away and made a return, probably a little bit less because he only had five talents. The other one had 10. And then the one with one says that he was afraid. He was afraid to do anything. And so he buried it in the ground because he thought, well, at least that way I'll be able to give the one back. And when the master came back, he said, you were unfaithful. You're wicked because you did not do anything with the talent that I gave you. It doesn't matter if you have 10 or one. If God has given you something, it's useful to him. And so we steward our talents. We invest them. When you spend time with other Christians, when you invest yourself, your money in your financial giving, in your fellowship, when you invest those things, you are serving Christ and you are stewarding a ministry. And God will one day evaluate our work. And God will evaluate my work as a minister of the gospel because I have the unique calling that fewer Christians have than more to be full-time vocational in my stewardship. That's the only difference between you and I. I'm not more spiritual than you. I'm not better than you. I'm not more holy than you. I have just been called to a vocational ministry in which I am called, you know, Monday to Friday or whatever my hours are, to actually do this every day. That's my stewardship. And so I want to make very sure that I know what that is and that I'm doing it correctly, right? Because if I'm investing 40 hours a week in in a stewardship that is way off course, it's going to be more costly than it is for you, right? Because God knows that your stewardship involves a, a wide variety of different settings and opportunities, whereas mine is very focused in the church. And so my stewardship has a disproportionate effect to who I am. And so I want to make sure that I steward correctly. And so this passage is all about my stewardship. Let's look at seven things that this passage talks about in terms of my stewardship to you and to the local church. Number one is that discomfort invites progress. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul is not saying that I'm suffering because Jesus' suffering wasn't enough. When he says I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for the church, he's not saying Jesus' sacrifice wasn't quite enough and now I need to go be a martyr for the church. Not what he's saying. What he's saying is that as a minister of the gospel, now Paul suffered more than I ever will. Lord willing. I I don't see myself ever suffering nearly what Paul did. But what Paul is saying is that his suffering was for the church and that his suffering produced good fruit for the church. In the same way that Jesus' death, his suffering brought the church together and made her a church and made her holy and made her the children of God. Likewise, when somebody suffers for the church for the sake of the gospel, it invites progress. It invites a new spiritual work happening in that church. And so Paul is saying, I am working toward the greater good of this church through my suffering. Now, why does he say I rejoice? And I I think it's because the suffering that a minister experiences for the sake of the gospel, those are little indicators that work is happening, that good things are happening. And where it's difficult, where there might be conflict in the church, those sufferings, those challenges 
are little indicators of where we can do better and where we can move forward and where the church can be transformed and move forward and, and move on in glory. So Paul says he rejoices. The reality underlying that is recognizing that Christ, Jesus himself, he is completely all in for his bride. Jesus does not have a backup plan of salvation. Jesus does not have a mistress on the side in case we fail him. Jesus is all in for his bride, which means that there is no shortage of effort or faithfulness that he will exert to save us and to bring us finally home to glory. Jesus suffered greatly to gain us. He suffered to gain you, to bring you close. And so my stewardship is to reflect that in the smallest, tiniest way as an under-shepherd. The Bible calls me an under-shepherd, which means that I am among the sheep But God has made me an under-shepherd to lead those sheep for which Christ first died. And it's that I do it for the sake of the church. Paul says it right in the text. For the sake of his body, that is the church. It's not for the sake of my biography. Not for the sake of my reputation. It's not so that people will say nice things about me. But it's so that the church would actually advance. And we were talking about this a few weeks ago when we talked about elders. And what is an elder's job? And I had drawn this diagram that uh, was a triangle. And elders appeared, at least in the graphic, to be at the top. And there was a congregation here. And a lot of people were saying, hey, what are elders doing there at the top? And I said, no, no, it's a bird's eye view. (laughs) So it's like this. And elders are in the congregation, but there's certain roles. But somebody else provided this diagram where it was kind of like, if you want to picture an elder, they're kind of like at the bottom or the back making sure that none are lost, making sure that none are wandering for the sake of making sure that everyone is following Christ together. For the sake of Christ, I will continue on. So this discomfort, any discomfort that I might face, though it totally pales in comparison to what Paul experienced, I will embrace and I will rejoice because those are the, those are the indications of the church moving forward and to help me to continue to move forward. Uh, number two, number one, Discomfort invites progress. That's my stewardship. Number two, uh, this is where I work. This is where I work. Verse 25, for the church, that is the church, verse 25, of which I became a minister according, here's the phrase, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. In other words, I entered into this ministry from a previous work in my life. I used to be a carpenter. I used to be a student full-time. God has called me and given me a stewardship from Christ and called me into a ministry. This is now my workplace. I don't work here at the theater, but I work among the church. In the, in the community, but primarily the church, Dustin. Primarily the church. God has called me to minister to the church of Jesus Christ. He has called me out of my past vocation and into this vocation. He says, I became a minister. In other words, God has transplanted me into this new role. 
And that's important because that sets a parameter around my life. That although other opportunities might come along, although uh, different, maybe better paying jobs might come along or difficulties might come along that might tempt me to want to abandon the work and the ministry that he's given me, I pray like Paul that I would identify that this is where I work and I will be here. And I'm not saying I'll be here until I'm 90, but I'll be here for the foreseeable future because he has made me a minister and it's, it was God's choice, which means I'm also accountable to him for what I do here. Uh, I didn't apply for a job at Evergreen Chapel because I just thought this was you know, the best HR department in town. God called me to this work quite independently of my ambition or my desire. And God tends to do that with people in the church. It was, I wasn't like Paul, like in, in open rebellion against the church. Paul, God had to save him dramatically on the road to Damascus and, and tear him out of his rebellion and make him a minister of the gospel. But I tell you, I was not looking to do the work that God called me to do. And yet here we are, and we're working together in this, in this amazing ministry, seeing people grow and seeing families put together. And it's all God's work. It's all his plan. But I recognize that he has uniquely called me into being a part of that plan in terms of being an under-shepherd. Um, and so let's just look at that verse one more time, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship that is that was given to me for you from God. In other words, this is a stewardship. I do not own it. This, this work is not my platform for my fame. It's not a platform for recognition. It's not a means to attain comfort. It's not for career advancement. It's for the church. It's for the sake of the bride of Christ. Today, more than any other day, I think pastors face the satanic temptation to make the church a platform for their fame, to tweet out their wonderful sermon thoughts, to get their podcast up to a certain number of followers. And I do a podcast, and I like doing that, to make sure the YouTube videos you know, get a lot of attention. And it's all about advancing your recognition as a pastor. It's so prevalent today. And I'm not saying this because I'm above that temptation, but to say to you, if you ever see me wandering in that direction, slap me hard. Dylan, I give you permission. <laughs> okay? This church is not a platform for my fame. It's not. It's a platform for the fame of Christ. And the more you become like him, the more famous he becomes in this town. Me or you getting recognition for anything in this town will be a detriment, will be, will be de detracting and taking away from the glory of Jesus Christ. So we need to recognize that our stewardship belongs to God and it's in Christ. So number one, discomfort invites progress. Number two, this is where I work. Number three, my job description is very basic. This I love because I do not take more than one direction at a time very well. Ask Shannon. I need one direction, and until I'm done that, I cannot start number two. My job description is very basic. Look at 25. So I received this stewardship from God that was given to me for the sake of the church. The little word, two. What is my stewardship? What's my job description? To make the word of God 
fully known. Making the Bible known in all of its parts, in all of its commands, in all of its comforts, in all of its promises, in all of its laws. To make it known to you is my primary job. Paul said to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. When people want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it, your job description does not change. The word of God is my central ministry. It's my job description to make the word of God fully known. To make it fully known. So what does that say about me? It means that any good that I do, any good that I do in any of your lives will be because in some way the Bible was made more clear to you or you were shown how to obey it more closely or you were shown how to embrace its promise. You were shown what your true identity is in Christ. You were shown, you were shown, you were shown something from here. It will not be my influence on you that truly makes you into a great Christian. It will not be my advice. It will not be my experience. It will, be, it will not be my insights. It will not be my humor, as sharp and witty as it is. It will be none of those things that does any good in your life. I may be a help to you. I may be a friend to you, and I pray that I am. But it is God's word alone that will do work in your life. And so everything that we try to do here is to expose you to more of God's word. That's why we try to be picky about what songs we sing, that they would expose you to God's word. It's why at the bottom of our little announcement sheet, we have a family reading plan so that you could be working through God's word on your own in your life. It's why our men's and women's Bible studies are that. They are Bible studies. They're not gossip sessions or venting sessions. We, we care about each other and we listen to each other, but we always go back to God's word because when it is made fully known, then we are being stewards of the ministry God gave us. As if God would put me in leadership over a church and then say, but use, you know, use whatever program works for you. He gives the ministry and he also gives the program book, the guidebook. This is, this is the instruction manual. I have no liberty to go outside of the Bible in terms of anything that I do. Any authority that the church has is insofar as it applies and upholds God's holy word. That's my job description. I love that. It's so simple. So number one, discomfort invites progress. This is the description of my stewardship. My stewardship involves discomfort, which invites progress. Number two, my stewardship is focused in terms of where I work. Number three, my stewardship has a basic job description. Number four, my stewardship is narrow. Why so narrow? Why so, why so basic? Why is my ministry just to make the word of God known? 26 and 27. <clears throat> to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
it's because the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God reveals the mystery of God. The Bible tells us that mystery had been concealed for ages. The, the Old Testament anticipated a Messiah, anticipated a Savior, anticipated a King. Right? Israel was anticipating, was waiting for their king who would rule forever and bring righteousness and freedom and security. But do you know what the mystery was hidden for ages? That that king would live inside of you. That was the mystery hidden for ages until Christ came. Paul says, now it has been revealed. So make the word of God fully known because in it, people learn that Christ is in them. People learn that they do not have to reach through empty, vacuous space to reach God. God reaches in and and embodies and lives inside his people. In the Old Covenant, they received a promise of a new covenant. The Bible tells us that the Old Covenant was not sufficient to deliver the promises that God had made. It wasn't enough. The Old Covenant did not achieve righteousness in us. And so Paul says that means that there was occasion for a better covenant, a newer covenant. And the Old Testament tells us that in the new covenant, God is not going to give the law, the Ten Commandments. He's not going to give them on stone like he gave them to Moses on the mountain. He is going to write his law onto our hearts. And you know what? Our hearts are not even going to be stone hearts. He's going to take out our stone hearts and give us beating hearts that respond to him. Friends, we now live in the time of the new covenant. We live in the time long anticipated by Israel. We are in that time and we are heirs of that covenant. We are sons and daughters of that covenant. As I spoke last week, we are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith, not by blood, not by the color of our skin, not by the language our grandmother spoke. We are heirs of the covenant by faith because we receive righteousness the same way Abraham did which was by faith. It's narrow because there is no other way to know God. My ministry is narrowly to make known the word of God because there's no other way to know how to live out this new covenant. What does it mean to walk with Christ inside of us? How does that transform my life? How does that make me different than I was before? Because the problem in the Old Covenant was that even when Israel learned the laws, even when they saw God do miracles, it didn't transform them. Do you realize that? It never transformed them to see the Red Sea open. People always say, why doesn't God do miracles like he did in the Old Testament? It makes no difference. Because people in the Old Testament saw miracles and for a time they were excited, but they were never transformed. The old covenant was not enough to transform them. So we don't, in the church, we don't just open a text and try to memorize it or try to just live out every dot and tittle and just make sure we are following its logic. We let the scriptures instruct us. We let the scriptures transform us because now we have God inside of us to enliven us to God's ways. That's why it's narrow. That's why we study the scriptures because it leads us in the truth of this new relationship with God. It teaches us what it means that Christ is in us. 
Friends, you have been made a precious child of God, not because you obeyed him, but because he reached down and he ripped you out of darkness and he gave you his spirit. That's the new covenant. The mystery hidden for ages is now revealed among his saints. So what on earth would I spend my time talking about and teaching on if I am not making known this mystery that's been hidden for ages? It's now revealed to the saints. It's now revealed to his church. It's revealed to the whole world. Why on earth would I talk about anything else? Why on earth would I do anything but try to explain this book over and over and over again to help us understand the great riches of that mystery? That's why it's narrow. Number one, discomfort invites progress. Number two, this is where I work. Number three, my job description is basic. Number four, it's narrow. Number five, how is it done? How do I make the word of God fully known? This one is really basic. Doesn't take a lot of deep study to pull this one out. Verse 28. To them, God chose to make known, this is 27, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 28. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's how it's done. We proclaim. Paul is saying, we proclaim. Now that word proclaim kind of has two, has two subcategories. To teach and to warn. To teach and to warn. And so, when I'm told to proclaim this mystery through the word of God, in season and out of season, I then invest most of my time in preparing and making sure that I am teaching this book well and faithfully and applicationally, devotionally, doctrinally to you. That's where I invest most of my time. If you want to know what my week looks like, right now I work three full office days in a week and I spend about 10 hours a week out of the 30 office hours. It usually works out a bit more because on Saturdays I work on it too. Probably 12 to 15 hours a week I spend preparing to teach this book. I don't say that to my credit, but I say that because when I look at my stewardship, my greatest call, my biggest priority is to teach the Bible. And so if I make that a low priority in my schedule, then I'm an unfaithful steward of the ministry. Now, my sermons, no matter how long I prepare for them, will not do the complete work in you when you hear them. I'm not so effective. I'm I'm not like when Christ said to his disciples, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. He meant it. You are not clean because of the word that I speak to you. I teach you God's word, but he calls us, and we'll talk about this in a minute, he calls us to then take the word and to go live it out, to meditate on it, to chew on it, to speak to each other about it. That's how God's word begins to do the greater work in our life. The work of my sermons does not usually take place in the 45 minutes while you're listening to it. That's why I get stressed out at conferences, because I know, even though I'm being so radically moved by a message, it does not take place or take hold in my life until I begin to live it out. 
So when we hear God's word, it's only the beginning, which is why when we have meals and coffee together, that's why we invest in that time because it's time to be honest with each other and say, hey, how is God working in your life through that? How are you doing with that? And, we, and we're just designed to help each other. So many of us have this idea, like college students, that it's like, I'm going to sit through this lecture, I'm going to take all the notes, and then I'll know it, and then I'll just spit it back out at the exam. That's not how God's word works. It be, you hear it, but we must also be doers of the word. <clears throat> Again, as I said, there's two elements. There's teaching and there's warning. Teaching is the explanation. It's, it's disclosing the word of truth to you. Warning is when we may have uncomfortable but necessary conversations regarding that word. So as a steward of God's ministry, I am to teach the word and I am also to warn people when I see them habitually and, and categorically, continually straying from that word. It's not because if somebody warns you, whether they're an elder, whether they're not, it's not because they, Lord willing, if they are faithful, it's not because they want to have control over your life. It's not because they want you to look like them. If I have to have awkward conversations with you where I warn you regarding the truth of Scripture and the reality in your life, it's not because I want to control you. It's not because I want you to look like me. It's because that's the stewardship that God has given me. It's not enough for me to just stand up and preach week after week after week and say, well, you're on your own. Hope it works out for you. I'm going to go lock myself in my office. My job is to follow up and to warn where warning is necessary. That's how we proclaim this word of truth. What's the point? Okay, number one, discomfort invites progress. Number two, this is where I work. Number three, my job description is basic. Number four, it's narrow. Number five, it's done through proclaiming, teaching, and warning. <clears throat> Number six, what's the point of all of it? What is the point of my stewardship? What is the point of my ministry? What is the point of all these hours I spend in God's word? What is the point of you sitting and listening to what I have to say? What is the point? Also in verse 28, that, that little word that, tells us the purpose of the activity. The activity is proclaiming through teaching and warning that is the goal that that activity has in mind. What's the goal? What's the point? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is the point. It's not enough to just say, oh, I preached a good sermon. All my points were in order. They were logical. I worked so hard on it. I studied the Greek. I consulted commentaries. I went to a conference the point of all that I do is to present you in this church mature in Christ. Maturity. Maturity is the goal. That's why Patrick, I think God laid that scripture on Patrick, so I didn't ask Patrick to choose that. That's how <clears throat> we began our service. Let those who are mature think in this way. 
that I would leave what lies behind and press on toward what lies ahead. That I would be moving forward, not in a prideful way. Paul says, not that I have already attained it, not that I have made it my own, but I struggle. But I struggle to move forward. It's not easy. It's not just knowledge that we need. It's not just information that we need. It's transformation. It's being changed. You know what's amazing? Part of this new covenant. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is describing when Moses got the law. He went up on the mountain and he met God. He didn't get to look at God face to face, but he met God, and he received the Ten Commandments. And he came down, and the Bible says that Israel could not look at his face because his face was shining. He had to veil his face so that the glory of the law would not blind people. Paul says, if that ministry came in glory, how much more will this ministry come in glory? And then he says this, but we all with unveiled faces are being transformed from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is one of my favorite passages. That is the hope of the Christian life, that you are being transformed from one version of glory to a better one. You know, a lot of us think, you know, we, we come to Christ and <clears throat> there's this big transformation. We sense this wonderful new life and everything looks great and golden. And we think, this is it. This is where I was always meant to be. And then you might get discouraged and you walk through life and it doesn't feel the way you thought it was going to feel. And you think, is this, am I going backwards now? No, because Christ is transforming us from glory to glory to glory. Just a quick story. When I was about 19 years old, <clears throat> I was first awakened, I think, to the reality of how Scripture could teach and instruct us. And I was so excited because I began to study and I began to see how all these verses fit together and God's plan for people and all these truths about what it meant to be a Christian. And all of a sudden I understood the Bible and I was so excited about God. And then I became very prideful very quickly, so quickly. And I began to just treat people so poorly who didn't agree with me, with my doctrine, with my tradition, with my influence. I became rude. I became arrogant. I became... I don't know what else goes along with that. I was a fool. And, uh, but it felt really good at the time. I didn't feel convicted at all. I felt like this is what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be like macho man with the Bible, and I'm going to smash error out of everybody. Some of you are like, you still like that. Okay. God is working on me. <clears throat> it felt great. Though. I felt like I finally was a mature Christian who understood the Bible. I was finally mature. I was like, oh, this is where I was supposed to be. And then about a year later, I went to this chapel service and this young guy from seminary who's incredibly smart, he's one of my mentors now, uh, he preached this message. And uh, I still have the sheets from that because basically God took the Bible and began to beat me down like a little whack-a-mole. Like, get back down. And God just crushed all the pride in me. He made me, he made me see how foolish and arrogant I was. And I, all, I was like, oh, I'm back where I started. And I thought, 
well, now God, now that, now that I've been humbled, God will build me back up to that. And I can tell you that I'm a thousand times more mature than I was back then, but I don't necessarily feel like I did then. I, I don't know. I was just puffed up on self-congratulatory feelings. But you know what? I know that God is transforming me from glory to glory to glory. And in that first step was necessary where he awoke me to his scriptures. Pride came with that and then he had to deal with that. And then from there, you know, we went in and I got married. And then I thought I, thought I was so ready for marriage. I listened to all these great sermons on how to be a great husband. I was like, how does anybody have any marriage problems ever? I'm going to show them. And then I got married and I realized, you don't know, Tim. And I just, I, I can't believe Shannon put up with me, for, especially for those first five years. I just think like, wow, she was hoping for something better. And, and God is transforming me and her into a new glory. He's transforming us. Maturity comes with time and effort. Sitting under God's word, putting into practice, having fellowship with people, being honest, being transparent, having repentance, laying aside what lies behind putting it aside and pressing on toward Christ. It's maturity. So all of this effort, all of this teaching, all of this thought and discussion has to lead to maturity. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about how husbands are supposed to love their wives, and that's not what this message is, but if a husband wants to know how to love his wife, he is supposed to look at the way Jesus loves the church. And so we gain a lot of insight about how Jesus loves the church. You know what he's doing with us? He's washing us with the water of his word so that he will present us spotless when he comes back. We will be spotless. Not because we have worked so hard, but because Christ is washing us day by day. He is washing out the things that are displeasing to him. He is moving you forward. We come to Christ in rags. And when we come to him in glory, we will be in a white, spotless garment, unstained by sin. This is Christ's plan for the church. So it's our plan right now is to press on toward maturity. I just want to ask you to ask yourself a couple of evaluation questions about maturity. Not, not to condemn you, but discomfort invites progress, right? Discomfort invites movement. So if you're uncomfortable with where you are right now in Christ, that's him speaking into your heart. And so I want to ask you some questions. And I've been asking myself these questions all week and on the flight home and all day yesterday just meditating on how can I move forward in my relationship with Christ? What is God calling me on to? Just a couple questions to help you evaluate. Where's your, where's your maturity in Christ at? And no matter where it is, it doesn't matter to me right now. You don't, I'm not expecting you to be anywhere along this spectrum. Because I, I, I've seen myself in the most foolish, ridiculous place of pride. And I've seen how God has grown me. So do not lose heart if you see yourself as immature in Christ. We all begin as babies, don't we? We all begin as babies. Babies don't know how to walk. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to do anything. They don't even know how to sleep. But God is faithful and he matures and he grows us. 
So a couple of questions to ask yourself. Do I, do I meditate on God's word? Do I meditate on the things of God? Is my mind drawn toward Christ and his word? Or is it constantly filled with what am I doing next? What's the next show I was going to watch? When's the next Leaf game? It's one I struggle with. Like what's happening in the sports world? Is my mind filled and longing after things that, that, that do not bring me closer to Christ? Or am I meditating and, and pressing on toward him? Another question is, do I prioritize the things of the Lord? It's very similar, but do I prioritize the things of the Lord? Fellowship with his people, worship with his people, studying his word. Do I prioritize the things of the Lord? Do I self-limit in regard to sin? in regard to indulgence? Or am I like an open gate? Proverbs says that that a man with no self-control is like a city with gates wide open or broken down walls. Am I like a city with broken down walls? I have no guard. Sin can just come right up in and just inhabit me. Do I just indulge in whatever entertainment comes along, in whatever opportunity comes along, regardless of its moral quality, regardless of how it reflects Christ or not? Do I, do I limit myself according to what I know? Do I resist certain things because they do not offer me maturity in Christ? Do I see the fruit of the Spirit being born in my life to some degree, in some changing degree? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Do I see those things? And I'll tell you, that's a good indication of where you're at with the Lord. I had a conversation with Shannon the other day where it was just like evaluating some things in my life that were just not where they ought to be. And it's just cause for examination. It's not not to condemn. It's to say that Christ wants to mature me. He wants to transform me to a new glory. He wants to bring me closer to him. Another question, do you disciple somebody? Are you being discipled specifically? Do you evangelize? Do you seek to share your faith or to be an influence on others? Do you seek God? Do you seek depth with God? Do you long for him? Again, maturity is not just agreement with doctrine. I used to think that my maturity was because I could sign on off on, on a set of doctrinal things that I thought were right. So I must be mature if I understand good doctrine. If I can sign off on this doctrine, then I must be mature. That is not the case. It's not. Maturity is not agreement with doctrine. It's growth. And especially in the last year, I, I think one of the greatest, one of the greatest, most single marks of maturity in the Christian faith is humility. Maturity and humility are so closely tied together. You know why? Because pride is because you do not see yourself as you ought. You do not have a very mature view of yourself if you are full of pride. Because in Christ, we learn that we are nothing. And we take great joy in that because Christ is everything. So humility. Are you moving away from sin and fickle immaturity towards stability, towards character in Christ, towards a greater endurance, towards greater influence and wisdom? Again, Philippians 3.13. I just want to read that one more time. Not that I have already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? 
Why should we press on in Christ when it's hard? Because Christ made me his own. In light of the fact that Christ has called you to himself, we press on to make him our own. Not that we need to. He's not letting us go. But we then strive and we press in to to attain to Christ. Because he made us his own. Without him, we are wandering. We are lost. But one thing I do. I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That is one thing I do, he says. I don't think I'm perfect, but this is what I will do. I will strive. I will work hard to the upward call of Christ. Friends, the work is all God's. But there is this synergistic thing that happens when you decide this is what you want. The power of Christ will work powerfully within you to lead you through to maturity. Friends, don't feel condemned if you feel immature. Because I'm very immature. Especially when I go to a conference with 4,500 other pastors, 4,449 of whom are more mature than me. Okay, God just wants to make me more mature. That's okay. I'm nothing compared to most of you even. I'm not mature. I have not attained to this. But God's word calls us together to move toward Christ. And so that's my stewardship. And he ends with this saying, To this I toil. For this I will struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I I am nothing compared with the record of faithful men who have served the church, who have served Christ. I'm nothing compared to what Paul laid down and struggled to establish the early church. I am nothing compared with the struggles that many of you have had in in, in maintaining faithfulness to your spouse or, or striving with a lost brother or sister. I'm nothing but I pray that I can identify with Paul here that I will struggle with the energy that Christ provides within me to to see this happen. So, friends, if you don't, you know, if you don't want to sign up to be a member right now, I'm not going to take that as a sign of your maturity. I, I don't care about that in the long run. I care that as you hear God's word, that it would stir in your heart and that you would lay aside what lies behind and that you would press on to what lies ahead. That's what I care about. I think God has given us great tools to help each other do that and I think membership is is a fantastic tool. But lay that aside for the moment and consider your life in Christ. Consider that Christ has made you his own and how do we respond but to press on and lay hold of him. And to prize him above everything else. This is countercultural. Culture tells us to idolize ourselves, to idolize our hobbies, to promote ourselves, to make known ourselves. Scripture says you want to be countercultural. Lay a hold of Christ and lay aside what you have left behind. Make him your own.